Good morning. If I don't know you, uh, my name is Andy Callis. I'm the youth pastor here at the chapel and excited to bring God's word to you today. Well, if you haven't seen any of the Lego movies, there is some great theology in the Lego movies. If you have seen them, I'm sure you've already noticed all of it, right? One of the Lego movies that I really like is called Lego Ninjago. And Lego Ninjago is a story about these Lego ninjas that are trying to protect their city from the evil Lord Garmadon. And one of the main ninjas' names is Lloyd. And Lloyd knows this horrifying truth. And that truth is, is that Lord Garmadon, the main villain, the one who's trying to wreck their city, is his dad. But Lord Garmadon, interestingly enough, he doesn't know that Lloyd is his son. And in an initial uh, fight scene, Lord Garmadon throws a bomb at Lloyd who tries to catch it, but fumbles it and falls over backwards. And so Lord Garmadon and his henchmen, they all point and laugh at Lloyd and be like, who taught you how to catch? And then Lloyd, in spite and in anger, he picks up the bomb to throw it back at him, and somehow he throws it backwards instead of forwards. And once again, Lord Garmadon and his henchmen, they all point and laugh and say, who taught you how to throw? And here's how the conversation ensues afterwards. Lloyd says, well, it's funny because no one ever taught me how to throw. I never had a dad that would play catch with me, hoping that maybe Lord Garmadon would get the point. He says, well, it shows because that's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Lloyd says, well, you know, I didn't have a dad that either taught me how to ride a bike or how to shave or... And Lord Garmadon says, you know what's funny? I know how to do all of those things. But yet those things are just sitting there idle in my brain, just wasted, floating away. I've never taught them to anybody. And he says, they'll probably just die with me. And of course, Lloyd is over here just fuming. He's like, you were my dad. You raised me. You didn't teach me anything. These things are all things that you knew. They were all things that were floating around in your brain but yet you didn't pass those things on to me as your son. And the reason why this enraged him and why it could enrage many children is because God has designed life in such a way where life gets passed on. It gets passed on from one generation to the next. If it doesn't, something is missing. Something is incomplete. And if it does, completeness happens. Maturity happens in the next generation down the line. Teaching kids how to ride a bike, or how to catch a ball, or how to throw a ball, or how to shave, or change their oil, or balance their checkbook, those are all important things. And those are all things that we want to pass on to our kids and to the next generation. But the Bible says that there is something that is of far more importance than those things. And of far more consequence if we don't do it, and that's passing along our faith. Right now, if you haven't been with us, we are in the middle of a four-part series on the value of the church. Josh talked about the value of belonging in the church. And last week, Ben talked about the value of discipleship in the church. Today, I'm going to talk with you about the value of teaching the next generation in the church and in your family and the importance of that in passing along the faith. And just as a side note, as I begin here, I'm not just talking to parents. I will be talking to parents, but I'm talking to grandparents. I'm talking to brothers and sisters. I'm talking to disciple makers, which all of us have been called to be. 
Every single one of us has a part to play in this. Every single one of us has a role in passing our faith along to the next generation. So there's three questions that I want to answer today, and you'll see those on your outline. And I'm not going to spoil all of them for you so that you might tune me out. I'm only going to give you the first one. So the first one is, why should we teach the next generation? Why should we teach the next generation? And God has created life, uh, very obviously, He's created life in a way where we are dependent on other people. We have a lot of babies and we have a lot of toddlers that are running around our church right now. And I can remember when we had our first baby. It's like, man, that thing just sucks the life out of you. And you're like, how? You're so small. You know, it, how is it that you just drain me completely? Well, they can't do anything on their own, right? They are 100% dependent on you as parents, so they can't, they can't feed themselves. They can't, they're not mobile at first. Then they get mobile and things maybe get a little worse at that point, but they're not mobile. You've got to carry them everywhere. You've got to change them. They can't change themselves. There's all kinds of things that you have to do for them, even putting them to sleep. Sometimes they just fight that. I can remember, uh, I forget which child it was, but it was like, I just happened to kind of have the magic at that point where I knew how to put this kid to sleep with a certain kind of a bounce rock maneuver. And so, and, and it wasn't working for Sarah at that time. There's plenty of times it was working for her and not for me. We'd have to depend on each other to try to put this kid to sleep. And she actually called me and, and I was at work. She said, I can't, I can't get the baby to go to sleep. Like, can you come home and do the bounce rock thing and see if you get the baby to go to sleep? I said, yeah, and so I vigorously slung the baby side to side and bounced them until they finally went to sleep, put them down, and I went back to work. Because babies are dependent on their parents for everything. They are needy creatures. And as they get older, there's still needs. They change, but there's still needs. They need to learn how to speak. They don't know how to speak. They don't know how to write. They don't know how to read. They don't know how to throw, catch, ride, and all kinds of numerous other things. But they have a far greater need than all of these things. They must be taught about God, about his ways, and about their need for salvation. And there is a push today in our culture that kids can just figure all this stuff out. That if you give them enough time and enough experience, they're kind of a clean slate. They kind of start life in neutral, and they will be able to figure these things out on their own. Disney tells them, if you just listen to the universe, if you just follow your heart, then things are going to work out for you, and you'll figure out the way that you need to live life. But the Bible says exactly the opposite. In Jeremiah 17, 9, Jeremiah tells us that they begin life with a heart that is deceitful above everything else. What does that mean? That means that their heart, if they choose to follow their heart, is going to deceive them. The very thing that they're trusting is going to trick them. It's going to fool them. So they can't follow their heart and find truth. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it says that they begin life physically, but at that time they have no spiritual life within them. They are spiritually dead. They're enemies to God, children of wrath. They are alienated from God. That's how they begin life. So if they just go with the flow of what their nature tells them to do, they will be living life in opposition to God. So they can't trust their nature to find truth. It says in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will drive it far from him. The default position of kids 
is foolishness. They need other people to step in, to correct them, to point them to God. They need help. They need your help, and they need my help. And each child is part of an entire generation that needs help. And it's our job collectively as the church to step in and to point them to Christ. This morning, we're going to be looking back to a period of time in the Bible before the church was even formed, and we're going to be looking at the nation of Israel. They had a dire need to pass their faith off from one generation to the next. Because if you know much about the Bible in the Old Testament, you will know that people were always after Israel. People were always trying to eliminate Israel. The last thing that they wanted is another generation of Israelites to show up. And Israel was pretty good at eliminating themselves. So they needed help as well. But every generation of, in Israel needed to pass off their faith to the next one for their survival and so that they would thrive. So first of all, we look at Moses and we look at the first generation of Israelites to leave Egypt. They wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years on what was an 11-day journey. They were 150 miles from the promised land. Why did they wander around so long? Because they complained, they grumbled against God. They were disobedient. They were ungrateful. And so God said, okay, we'll have just this period of time where until you get your attitude straight, we can just walk circles in what could be a very short journey to the promised land and the blessing that I have for you. But you know who was wandering around with them, with that first generation? Their kids. Their kids had to go through and suffer through decades and decades of delayed blessing because of the parents and their disobedience. So they're wandering around the wilderness also. Parents, grandparents, disciple makers, brothers, sisters, your walk with the Lord greatly impacts people around you, positively or negatively, and we can't forget about that. What kind of example are you setting day in and day out? Is it like that first generation of Israelites? Griping, complaining, negative, nothing's ever right, never content, or is it more along the lines of thankfulness, faithfulness, and obedience. This second generation suffered because of the first, but they learned a thing or two, and they learned a thing or two from their negative example, kind of what not to do, and they chose, the second generation chose to follow the Lord, and they were different. So after Moses dies, and their new leader is now Joshua, and Joshua steps in, and we see the second generation is different. They did well. They were obedient, they were grateful, and God blessed them, and he blessed their children, and he blessed their families tremendously because of it. When we look at the beginning of the book of Joshua, we see it starts with a miraculous crossing of the Jordan River when it's at flood stage. So God is saying, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be with Joshua, just like I was with Moses, and just like I was with your forefathers. So they cross the Jordan River at flood stage, and soon after, What's the first thing that they're called to do? To have this crazy battle strategy to make the walls of Jericho fall down and defeat Jericho. And what does this generation choose to do? They say, you know what? Like, we're going to do exactly what God told us to do. We saw how our parents did it. That didn't work out very well. They all died in the wilderness. So we're going to do exactly what God has called us to do, even though it doesn't make any sense. We're going to trust him. And that's what they did. And the walls of Jericho fell. 
And if you continue to read through the first 10 chapters of Joshua, it just talks about how they go from one victory to the next, to the next, to the next. Not in perfection, but that is the pattern of this generation. They conquer southern Canaan, then they conquer northern Canaan. And it says in Joshua 10:42, all these kings in their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. You see this first generation, and it seems like God is having to fight against them. It's like he has no choice. If you're going to continue to disobey, continue to be unfaithful, well, I'm going to be fighting against you and your progress. And I don't know about you, but that's the last thing that I need in my life. And that's the last thing that I wish for my children and those that I'm discipling. I don't want God fighting against them. I want God fighting for them. I want him fighting for me and for my family and for our church. We want God fighting for us, not against us. Now, this generation, they were faithful, and God did so much through them, but you know they still lacked something? They lacked something that was really a big deal. They did not successfully pass their faith on to the next generation. And the next generation suffered because of it. We see this in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. It says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or, work, or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, and from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger." And if you know the rest of the story, you will know that the book of Judges is one of the most disturbing books in all the Bible. And you see this cycle. The children of Israel decide, you know what, we're going to do things our own way. And eventually, there would be someone who would come and enslave them and oppress them. Finally, they would come to their senses. They would cry out to God. God would send a judge who would deliver them. And then there's a period of peace and rest. And then the children of Israel would wander after other gods and they would start worshiping them. And then someone would come and oppress them and enslave them. And then they would cry out for a deliverer and a deliverer would come and then they'd have peace and rest. And then they would wander after other gods. You see the cycle? That's what would happen in Judges over and over and over again. And here's how the book of Judges really could be summed up. And it says this twice in the book of Judges, but in Judges 17, 6, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and here's the key, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Why did they do that? Because no one had taught them to do differently. They went and just did what was right in their own eyes, and it led to disaster. So why should we teach the next generation? Well, because if they're left on their own to teach themselves, they will fail, according to God's word. They don't stumble into truth. They don't just come upon light. They stumble into darkness, and they stumble into foolishness. And they're depending on us. They're depending on our example and our instruction in the ways of God. So that's why we should teach the next generation. What's the second thing? The second thing is, what should we teach the next generation? What should we teach the next generation? In this same era, uh, we look at the, bo the book of Deuteronomy, which is set before Joshua in the setting here is it's year 40 of the wilderness wandering, and you have this entire generation that has died off because of their disobedience, their lack of faith, they grumbled, they complained, they died off just like God said that they would, and Moses is giving speeches to the nation of Israel to remind them or to tell them, here's what you need to know as you enter into the promised land. The same debacle that happened over the last 40 years 
here's how you can avoid that. You don't want that to happen, right? No, we don't. Okay, what should we teach the next generation? What should they learn? What's important so that that doesn't happen again and they experience blessing instead of cursing? And Moses tells them this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, this is what you need to teach your children and this is what you need to teach your children's children so they will thrive in life and in the Lord. And so we're going to be reading Deuteronomy chapter 6, which Nathan read some of earlier. We're going to read the entire chapter. And as we go through and read it, as I read it to you, I want you to be looking for, I want you to try to answer that question. What should be taught to the next generation? Because there's about 10 things or so that Moses mentions in there of, Hey, make sure that they know this. Make sure that you do this, that you teach them that. And so that's what I want you to pay attention to as we read Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, the houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the, anger of, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did in Massa. You shall teach diligently, you shall diligently teach the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that, God, that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us up out from there, that he might bring us in, 
and give us the land which he swore to give to our fathers. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So this is the speech that Moses gives to the second generation of Israelites that are going into the promised land. The first thing that Moses says in verse 1 is that he makes it clear, he realizes this is my responsibility to teach you. It's not someone else's responsibility, it's mine. And that's why he says that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. And this falls on all of us in different ways, but I especially wanted to use the example of fathers. Dads, you have been called as the spiritual leaders of your house. No one else can take that place. God has called you into that role. How are you leading by example? How are you being intentional? And I don't think it has to be anything huge, but it has to be authentic. It has to be real. Because people are watching you. They are catching things from your life. They're going to learn things about you by where you're spending all your time and your money and your energy and your focus. Do they watch your life and say, my dad knows all about the stock market. And my dad loves the cardinals. And my dad is great at building stuff. Are any of those things wrong in and of themselves? No, of course they're not. But if the first thing that comes to the mind of your kids and people in your family is, oh, that's what they're all about, and it's not, they love Jesus, they love my mom, and they love me, then your priorities are not ordered properly. We've got to make sure that we're leading by example. We're taking that upon ourselves to make sure that the next generation that's in my household, I need to lead them. I need to guide them. Am I doing that? But of course, moms, grandparents, brothers, sisters, spiritual parents, you guys all have a role to play as well. And whoever it is that's part of the next generation that's in your sphere of influence, it is on you to teach them. Moses knew that. He knew that this was his role. So what did Moses teach them? Well, in verse 3, he talks about obedience to God brings blessing to your life. And this is important to teach, especially as kids grow up and they're teenagers. And all they're going to hear from their friends and from other places is the commands of God. Those are boring. Like, all that does is rob you of fun. Why would you want to follow those things? But Moses says, obedience to God brings blessing in your life. You want things to go well in your life? Then you need to be obedient to God. The next generation needs to learn the commands of God are not a burden, but they're a blessing and they're a protection to us. In verse 5, Moses talks about loving God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your might. Basically, with everything you have. You could probably summarize this and say, fully engaged. Your life is not divided passions here, there, and everywhere, but Christ alone is your passion, far above anything else, and that passion uh, dictates much of what you do, and it infiltrates all other areas of your life. Jesus repeated this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. He said, this is the greatest commandment of all the Bible. Why is that? Because if you are loving God with everything that you have, it's going to influence everything else in your life and every other relationship that you have. 
He's like, do this above all other things, and it is going to impact all kinds of stuff in your life and your importance of reaching the next generation. It will be on your heart and on your mind, and you will do it with all of your might because God is number one in your life. In verses 10 through 12, Moses goes through and he talks about all these things that Israel was inheriting and basically showing them that God is a God of grace. He's given you all these great things that you don't deserve. You've got cities that you didn't build. You've got houses filled with good things. You didn't fill them. You've got cisterns that have been dug so that you can have water. Guess what? You didn't dig that. You've got olive trees and you have vineyards that you didn't plant, but yet you get to reap the fruit of those things. Well, did they deserve any of that? No, they didn't deserve any of it. But the God of grace, the God of mercy is the one that said, you know what, I'm going to give all these things to you just because I love you. So are we teaching them that God is a God of grace? In 2 Timothy 2.1, Paul is telling a discouraged Timothy, he says, here's how you can be strengthened. So as we're trying to teach and be an example to the next generation, it's very easy to just give a list of things to do. If you'll just do this, follow all these rules. Well, here's what Paul told Timothy. He said, if you want to be strengthened, you can be strengthened by the grace of God. It's meditating on and focusing on and remembering that he is a God of grace. That is what's going to strengthen your faith and cause you to live your life for him. So, those that you're influencing in the next generation around you, do they know that your God is a God of grace? He is a God of redemption. He is a God of forgiveness. That even when we try to live with our heart, and all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our might, and we fail, do they know that God is not just putting your life in the scales, but he's like, you know what? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I've got grace to cover that and I've got grace to cover that, and I've got mercy upon mercy. It's new every morning. Do they know that's the kind of God that you serve? Because if they do, they're going to want to serve him too. In verse 13, Moses tells the children of Israel to fear God. And you know, in the culture that we live in, we have so many safeties, and we have so many assurances that other cultures have never had, or still today they don't have. But there is still a lot of fear, and there is a phobia for about everything. My favorite phobia, by the way, is phobophobia. You know what that means? It's the fear of being afraid. <laughs> phobophobia. So we're afraid of a lot of things, but sometimes we're even afraid that we're going to be afraid. We have a lot of fear. We have a lot of legitimate fears. Losing our money, losing our job, losing our friends, losing our family, losing our retirement, losing our health. But you know what happens is when we focus on all those things and we're afraid of those above everything else, our fear of God shrinks and vice versa. As we start to fear God more and we remember, oh wait, there's a God out there that is worthy of my awe and my fear and my admiration and he is actually in control of all of those things and I can trust him, all of a sudden my fear of those things starts to go down as my fear of him starts to go up. Moses says, fear God so you don't fear everything else. Also in verse 13, Moses says to serve God. If you know a God like this and you fear him, you're going to want to serve him. It'll be the greatest thing that you can think of, the greatest thing to live your life for. Are you serving the Lord in such a way that the next generation that is in your household or is in your church that's around you, 
where they see that life is not just about you. It's not just about yourself. Do they see you serving other people? When there's a need in your family, when there's a need in the church, do they see you rising up and saying, you know what, we need to go serve that person. We need to take care of this person who's struggling. Uh, I'm, I'm going to send a card. I'm going to make a meal. Uh, there's a need in the nursery. There's a need to lead a small group or a Sunday school class. I'm going to step up and do that because I've been called to serve and to get my eyes off of myself. Moses tells them to serve God. That is contagious for those that are watching you. Verse 14, he says to not worship the false gods that are around them. And it's a little different today, but our culture is still filled with all kinds of false gods. We've got gods like the God of popularity. We've got gods like the God of pleasure, the God of treasure, the God of comfort, the God of entertainment. And it's easy, so easy to live for all of those things. But are we warning the next generation and telling them like, hey, so a lot of those things, there's not necessarily anything wrong with them, but if you start to live for those things, like you're going to be sorely disappointed. There is short-lived fulfillment in those things, and those things will ensnare you, and they'll eat up your life. Are we warning them about that, to not follow false gods that our culture is constantly putting in front of their face? Moses did that very thing, according to Hebrews 11.25. It says that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So again, Moses led by example. Where is your time? Where is your energy? Where is your money? Where is your attention? Where is your focus going? Because the next generation around you, they'll pick up on that. Like, well, you say to serve God, but I, I see what you're about. Your, your life says it. Moses said, I'll be mistreated with the people of God. I'd rather do that than enjoy the fleeting, short-lived pleasures of the gods around me. Verse 18, Moses says to do what's right. There's benefits connected with doing what's right. You'll reap rewards for that. Do they know that God will reward them for doing what's right, even when it's hard, even when no one else is watching? And do they also know that God is omniscient and that you can't just do what's right when people are watching? Moses said in Numbers 32, 23, that if you sin, your sin will find you out. Do they know that you reap consequences from doing what's wrong, but you reap blessings and benefits from doing what's right, even if nobody else but God knows. And then at the end of the chapter, I think this is so important, um, Moses tells them in verses 21 through 23, tell them about what God has done in your life. What has God done in your midst? Tell them your story. He says, make sure that when they ask you, like, why are we following all these rules? Why are we following these statutes? Why are we going to church? Why are we opening up the Bible and doing a devotion at home? Why are we doing all that stuff? Moses says, here, tell them that we're serving this God who delivered us out of Egypt. He saved us, and he's continued to do great things in our midst. So the next generation that's around you, have you taken the time to share your story with them. I came to the men's breakfast yesterday, and I didn't get to compliment him yet, but I heard a powerful story from Charlie Garner. He shared his life with us. said, here's what's happened in my life. Here's how I've seen God work. And it was a powerful testimony to me and to everybody else that was there. Share your story with those that are around you of the next generation. 
give them reasons practically why, here's why you can hope in God. Here's what he's done in my life. Here's how he saved me. Here's what he's doing right now. Here's how I see him at work. Here's what I'm trusting in him for. Share your story with them because it will motivate them to want to know that God and to live for him also. And Moses wraps it up in verse 24, saying, just like verse 3, God has your good in mind. Follow his commands and good things will happen. And in verse 25, keep his commands because it leads to righteousness. Now there's a lot in there. Don't have to teach all those things, emphasize all those things at once. But how are you teaching them out of the word and by the example of your life these things? Obey God, love God, know God is a God of grace, fear God, serve God, worship God and not idols, do what's right and share your story. How are you sharing those things with the next generation? Maybe you should pick one. Maybe there's one of those things you're like, man, that's one that I need to work on with the next generation that's around me. Emphasize it. Spend time with whoever it is that you need to. Live it out and teach it to them. Because they need to know these things, because again, they will do and they'll believe the exact opposite by the default of their sinful nature and their own deceptive hearts. So that's what we should teach the next generation. And lastly, how should we teach the next generation? How should we teach the next generation? Moses tucks this away at the beginning of the chapter, verses 7 through 9, which was read earlier. First of all, he says that we should teach them diligently in verse 7. I looked up the definition of this word, and it says, steady, earnest, energetic effort, and then it summarizes it by saying, painstaking, painstaking. Moses tells them to be diligent in their efforts to teach them these things to the next generation. Crazy effort, painstaking effort, focused, intentional. And truth be told, as I examine my own life and I think about the effort that I put forth in discipling the next generation in my household and the next generation in my ministry, oftentimes it is not characterized by painstaking. It's characterized by things like, when it's convenient, I'll do that. If I have time, I'll do that. If I'm not too tired, then I will teach the next generation some of these things. But Moses says, no, it's got to be diligent with much effort. And we put all kinds of focus and effort on so many things in life. Are we putting effort into this? It's crucial. It's so much more important than so many of the other things we spend our time and our life on. Also in verse 7, Moses says, Talk about God throughout your day and throughout your life. In MacArthur's study notes, he says, This includes both inside and outside the home from the beginning of the day to the end. This makes me think of even in the mundane things, you're doing car rides to school. You're doing car rides home. You're doing car rides to the next practice. And you're doing car rides back home. And it makes me think of what Paul said in Ephesians 5.16, redeeming the time. How can I redeem the time? You're going to talk about something, Right? You're going to talk about something during that time. You're going to be thinking about something. You're going to be listening to something during that time. Why shouldn't it be about God, about what God's doing, about asking some questions to find out what God is up to in the life of those that you are discipling? It's been such a blessing for us when we had our first child, Parker. 
we decided that Sarah was going to stay home uh, with him, kind of for as long as we could do it. We didn't know how long it would be. We didn't think it would be 15 years, but here we are. And um, as the spiritual leader of my household, you know, um, sometimes I plan these, these family worship times, these family devotions, and in my mind, I'm picturing just like we are tuned in to Dad and hanging on every word that he reads to us and that he teaches to us. And at the end, kind of like in Acts 2, we're like, we are cut to the heart, Dad. What should we do? And I've been waiting a really long time for a devotion to go like that. And, and it hasn't quite happened yet, but I'm still going to keep working at it. So a lot of times in my own mind, I've kind of pictured like, yeah, this is, this is what it means to lead. I'm going to have this fantastic time where I'm leading from my chair and everyone, maybe they'll be gathered at my feet, who knows, ready to receive the wisdom that I'm going to bring to them. And it's yet to happen. But then I'll come home from work one day and Sarah will say, yeah, the kids and I were, we were washing the dishes, we were doing school, we were going to the gas station, and some things came up about God, and some questions came up, and we had a great conversation about this thing that had to do with the Lord or God's Word, and I'm like, hmm, cool. Why doesn't that happen in my family devotion times, you know? But there's something to be said about time, about spending time with those around you of the next generation. If you don't spend time with them, these conversations a lot of times are not going to happen. You're not going to have the opportunity to be intentional with them. So maybe that means today that you need to think about like, man, I need to find some time somewhere. And my schedule's booked. I don't have time to invest in the next generation. Really in to talk about these kind of things, maybe you need to cut something out so that you can be more of an influence to them. In verse 8, Again, Moses makes the point that your faith has to mean something to you. Talked about all your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. And he gives the example, these should be close to your heart. You want to bind these things on your hand and on your forehead so that you're thinking about God throughout the day. He's that important to you. It goes beyond just a quiet time. Your kids are going to pick up on authenticity or lack thereof. And then lastly, in verse 9, talks about putting signposts everywhere. I read from an author one time who took this literally, and he said, I put all kinds of things up. I put them on my bumper. I put them on my mirror. I put them on my wall. And I put things up about God everywhere in my house and everywhere that I was in hopes that my kids would see it and remember it. And you know how some of those plaques go, the one you put in your bathroom, and it's got a Bible verse on it, and you think about it the first couple of weeks, and then it's just something on the wall. But I will tell you, I can remember from spending time at my grandma and my grandpa's house, and they had, a, they had a wooden plaque that was above their door, and it said, Lord, bless all who enter here. And as a kid, as, a, as their grandkid, I can't tell you a single time where they did the devotion with me that I remember, or really anything that they specifically taught me about God but yet, I saw by their life that they loved us. I knew they loved God and loved their church. And I saw this sign every time I went in and out of their house. They loved other people. They wanted God to bless other people. And so when they passed away, we took that. And we put it over our door for years and years, and we still have it. 
And so the things that we put on the wall even or on our bumper, the things that we allow them to see, those things too can impact their life. The whole idea being we want this to be something that's everywhere and it's throughout the day. So how we teach the next generation should be with painstaking effort, which we all fall short on, but God, we want more effort into this. Throughout the day, time carved out for one another, and it has to be authentic. So as we conclude, teaching the next generation, it is of vital importance. There's a lot of things that the next generation is dependent on us for. There's a lot of things that we should teach them, a lot of practical things they need to know, but nothing is more important than passing along our faith to the next generation. You have them in your family. You have them in your church. And you have them in your community. And remember, they're not just going to stumble into the truth. They're not just going to figure these things out. They need us to step in to live an example and to point them to the truth of God and his word. If we take this seriously, they will inherit a huge blessing. Their family is going to be stronger when you're dead and gone. The church will grow and be stronger when you've moved away, when you're not here anymore. And the community will be different. But if we don't, we see the the judgment and the consequences on the first generation in the wilderness. And we see the same thing in the book of Judges. And those kind of things will fall on them, and that's not what we want. They'll do what's right in their own sight. They'll grumble, they'll complain, and they will suffer because of it. So my encouragement to us today, and what I want my prayer to be about, is that God will put something on our heart, one thing that we can do, that we need to focus on, so we can give our faith away, even in small little increments, to the next generation that's around you. Have a meal. Share your story. Say a prayer for them. Sign up for, pray for me. Pray for a student for a school. Whatever it might be, that God helps us to take a step in that direction because they need us. Let me pray for us. Lord, we have a a weighty task. You have designed life in such a way where when we come out of the womb, we are helpless. We are 100% dependent on other people to meet our needs. We continue to be so dependent as we grow up. And as we think about spiritually speaking, we are 100% dependent on you and on those that have already had their eyes open to the truth, that have crossed over from death to life. We need those people to impart the truth to us by their example and through the word of God. And I pray that you would help us, God, just to take a little step today, this week, toward being more intentional with the next generation. They need our help. And we need your help to do that, Lord. As we talk about the gods of this age and this culture, there are so many things that are around us that many times are even good things but they distract us from the ultimate thing. And Lord, none of us would want the next generation that we know that's in our household, that's in our church, that's in our community to suffer in the way that we see in the Bible oftentimes people did when the faith was not passed along to them. So God, I pray that you would build us up, help us through the power of your spirit to love you with everything that we have, with our heart, with our soul, and with our might so that that would spill over on the next generation that's around us. Give us the strength to do that. Help us to remember that you're a God of grace who forgives us when we don't and helps us to get back up and try it again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.